0: This episode of Converge with my guest, John Hart, is sponsored by Gobi Collective. Gobi is my favorite community for creative entrepreneurs on the internet. It's built from the ground up to inspire, equip, and catalyze you and your business. For more information, check out gobycollective.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things. And when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Some guys just want it all. And one of my favorite one of those guys is John Hart. After investing seven years at a Fortune 50 company, John helped launch a new venture and revive another. And while he was there, he chose to be a learner, gobbling tons of intel about operations, customer experience design, operational leadership, and brand management. In 2012, he left the corporate world and jumped into the indie film production world and made a little movie called The Little Tin Man. And by the way, it's a hilarious trailer and movie. You can check it out online uh, or just check the show notes, but don't miss it. Then John worked on his own startup, and while serving as an advisor to a handful of other stage ventures, like he was helping his own stuff and doing help with other people's ventures. He's now the director of the Praxis Academy over at PraxisLabs.org, a nonprofit and for-profit business accelerator. John is also the founding board member and current chairman of the board at 100 Cameras, a nonprofit that empowers marginalized children to be catalysts for change in their communities. And he's a graduate of the Carlson School of Management, so he's done formal grad school at the University of Minnesota. He lives in Manhattan, which is always cool to be a part of New York City. And John is passionate about serving entrepreneurs and inspiring the next generation of world changers. So as we get ready for this conversation, you might be asking yourself, is that me? Am I the next generation of world changers? Could I be part of that crew? And if that is you, and you're seriously committed to being counted as part of that next generation, well, you're about to get served.
1: Failure is easier to fix than regret. You got to dive in and you got to allow yourself to fail because if not, you're going to hold a bunch of regrets in your life and you can't go back.
0: I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. John Hart, welcome to Converge.
1: Dane, thanks so much, man. It's good to talk to you. I'm so uh, honored that you asked me to be on here. I I, I will say, um, knowing you, Dane, and how kind you are, you probably just gave me an introduction that was like way over the head, and, and <laughs> over, the, over my head, and you probably oversold me to everybody. So I'm going to just take a second and make sure we... Have the audience just lower the expectations a little bit here. I'm not. I'm not going to change your life uh, in the, in the next uh, half hour here. So let's let's just do that. But thank you for the generous introduction,
0: dude. You're stud. I, I, what I what I love about you, John, is um, you do. I mean, objectively, whether or not you know we blow it up or kind of hyperbolize about it, objectively, you have a significant amount of historical experience and, in a lot of varied directions: nonprofit, for profit, creative, corporate. And in those spaces, you're doing, you know, leveraging really particular skills along the way, and even your formal education. It does seem like there's a lot of kind of background, and and you're right in the sense that I I don't want to elevate that, and even for our audience, I don't want to elevate it because there's a sense in which that can be intimidating for folks, because not everyone has had those kind of incredible opportunities. But what I love about you, John, is you're someone who who has those experiences, but you don't rest on those experiences. It seems like you have treated your whole career as Building blocks as like you're you're throwing things in your backpack, and when you when you're in the right context, you love pulling those things out and leveraging them for the moment. At least that's how it looks like from my perspective. Is that is that how you relate with it, or how would you frame your experience so far?
1: Yeah, well, uh, again, thank you. That that's kind of you to say. I I would say, uh, you know, Dane, there's this uh, there's this quote. Uh, it's a lyric from a, a band named Sleeping at Last, and it says, "Life without revision will silence our souls." and when i heard that i just it just resonated some, somewhere deeply within me i use it often now because i think it expresses something that that i've felt deeply for a long time and that's that i i i've never wanted to be the, the kind of person that just kind of rests and sits back and you know rests on my laurels or what's happened in the past i've always wanted to learn i've ha- have a curiosity about life And about, you know, different types of business and different endeavors. And there's just something inside of me that if I rest back on my laurels, I I will lose it and I know it. And and I can just kind of coast through life and live a very comfortable, risk-averse life. But thankfully, you know, as soon as I have taken a couple of those small risks— it gives you more confidence and it helps you to take the next risk and then the bigger one and the bigger one and so on and so forth. But it is a it is a constant battle to continue to engage in the world that way and to want to take those risks and, and not just kind of step back and rest on what you've learned so far. And uh, I've, I've just been very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities. You know, the other key there is I'd say – I've had really great people around me, both uh, mentors that are, you know, helping me know which of those risks to take and which ones not to, and just community of people, uh, community of creatives and people that are just big ideas folks and uh, brilliant people around me. And that has given me a lot of those opportunities. Uh, these are certainly not opportunities that I've created for myself so much as I've been in the right place at the right time for, for um, I, I'd say, almost all of them, so...
0: Hmm. You know, one of the things I mentioned just as a side note in the intro was you're you're in Manhattan, and I'm curious if in the internet age, how how important to have the kind of community you're describing? How important is it to be geographically located near a, a creative community like that?
1: Well, you know, I've I've found it incredibly important. I've I've been in New York for almost uh, eight years now, and and a couple of the most significant things that I've been a part of have have come through. Being a part of a small community in New York, when I when I first got here, there was a small group of people that would meet in this tiny little apartment on the Upper East Side on Sunday mornings, and we would have these things that eventually we call inspiration brunches. A lot of people move to New York and they're not doing what they really dreamt of doing when they move to New York. They've got to take you know the job at Starbucks or you know waitressing or uh, something like that. When they actually moved here to start an organization or be on Broadway or make a film. And we just started getting together, uh, that, that community, and it was a time for us to not talk about, you know, the mundaneness of, you know, having to work the, the shift at the wine bar until 3 a.m. last night, but instead talk about the passions and the big ideas that we had, and for us to, number one, encourage each other in those things and express the ideas that were on our hearts, and um, also to help each other and just say, hey, I met this person the other day, and you should definitely connect with them. I told them about your project because— Chances are when you're geographically located to a community like that, I think it increases your commitment to one another being that close. And it, like there's that in-person element with a, with a relationship that you just can't replicate over the Internet. And I think that that's – it's not just like, a, okay, we're friends, but it's, it's literally like people going to bat for one another. So they might be at like a party talking and they run into somebody that's interested in film and they say, oh, I've got this friend that you have to meet. Would you would you please meet that person? And that's an introduction because you have that face-to-face relationship with that person that they're actually, I find, more likely to do that for you as opposed to some connections that you know, I've made with people over the Internet. It's less likely that they're going to actually take that extra step and find somebody else and then sort of refer them. And I think that that's how the, the network expands and more opportunities are created.
0: I love how you emphasize that it's important, but only if you take advantage of it. Because you're right, there's so many folks that will come to a Nashville, in LA, a New York, or wherever. And it doesn't have to be a big city. It could be a, I mentioned Nashville, which isn't a, it's like the small, it's the biggest small city on the planet, it feels like right now. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but uh, it, it, these places where it feels like people gather, like it could have been Seattle in the 90s or it could have been, you know, like there's just so many different spots that have emerged over time, but it really isn't the spots, is it? It's it's the gathering of people who are unified in vision, and they they do those Sunday brunches, like you're describing.
1: Yeah, it it certainly is. I mean, I think that their their propensity of people and the the proximity of them might be bigger in certain cities, but I think that they're they're available in whatever city that you're in. Uh, some of them, it might be harder to find and identify those people, uh, but it's always about taking the action to um, to, to make that, that happen.
0: Let's go back just a little bit and talk about your kind of some milestone experiences. And I'm going to group them, a, and you can tell me if these are helpful or not, but I want to group them a little bit in kind of chunks. So maybe grad school plus your experience at the Fortune 50 company, kind of that era, and then the second one I'd love to talk a little bit about is uh, your world of film production with the Little Tin Man, and then I'd love to talk about Praxis, and then I'd love to talk about a hundred cameras. So uh, does that order work for you?
1: Yeah, I, I will. I will make a correction. It, it, maybe it, maybe I need to change how my bio reads to make sure that there's a clear journal lineation. But my. The Carlson school does a undergrad. I, that was my undergrad.
0: Oh, forgive me. I, I, well, I just, I, I think so well of you. I just, I just, yeah. I upgraded you. I gave you an honorary MBA. So congratulations. <laughs> that's perfect. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So, so, but it was, it, it was management business school, right? Undergrad? Yeah. So
1: they, I mean, they have a pretty intense uh, undergraduate business program there. That's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's well thought of for a, for a public research institution. Um. So, But yeah, in in my undergrad, I did actually because when I got there, I found the school to be very siloed, the the management school. And it's got this sort of like reputation and prestige um, that a lot of people there thought the same way about business. And so one of the things that I did is I chose to do um, two minors outside of it. Um, and so I did a minor in the liberal arts school in a minor in leadership, and then I did a minor in the journalism school in public relations, mass communications. I love that. Um yeah. So that that did help me a lot to just get out of kind of that one track business mindset because a lot of people think the same inside of that uh that place. It's a
0: wonderful school and I love it. Mm-hmm. But well, I love that too, because it sets a table for you know, for a lot of folks that if they have a diverse background. That you know you created that diverse background by starting in, in undergrad business, but then adding communications. What, what was the other one? Oh, liberal arts. Brilliant moves. Learning how to learn. Really smart. Uh, roundedness to the to the experience. How did you make your your leap from setting that educational foundation to your first uh, serious job?
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was fortunate the the business school there has people come on campus and recruit. So it was, it was nothing that I did. It's just, the school has a good reputation and people come there and are higher. And, and it was a good part, good time in the economy then as well. So you know, I was thankful to have a couple of opportunities. And, and so that's when I signed a job offer during my senior year and then transitioned into that. So from there, it was kind of more a matter of, okay, what's going to happen now? So I've learned all of these things. I don't want to be in a corporate environment and just kind of do the same things. So one of the, one of the big questions that I asked the different people that I was interviewing with is what does a typical career path look like within the organization? And I would throw out scenarios of, hey, what if I wanted to go over and do advertising? Or what if I wanted to do uh, HR or you know, legal? And just to see the reaction of recruiters was really interesting. So some were very much like, well, that doesn't really happen. What happens is you come in, you do this, you do this, you do this, about 10 years in, we'll pay for your MBA, and then you just keep going up. Okay, that, that's fine. But that, that wasn't me at all. And the, the company that I chose to work for said, yeah, you can totally do that. We, we're all about our people sort of exploring and figuring out over time what they're best at and, um, and and kind of creating their own path. So I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to work for an organization that emphasized that. And I got to do it One of my first project there was actually starting a new company within the company. And I, I have no idea how I got that opportunity to be on the team that got to do that. But it was uh, incredibly difficult and also incredibly rewarding. So, one of my first conversations with my new boss was letting him know that I'm sort of up for anything and that if there's like these kind of odd projects that I'm not on just kind of this singular path upward, I'm really wanting to kind of go all over the company and learn a lot of different things because I think that that's probably more valuable than me just advancing as fastly, as quickly as I can up up the ladder.
0: So, so what? Talk a little bit about the, about the transition then, when you made the leap from that to becoming a, a producer on an indie film.
1: Yeah, so you know when I moved to New York, and I actually um, the New York move was pretty interesting in the sense that I had these friends that I had met, and they they weren't you know great, super close friends, but uh, one of the guys said to me uh, when I met him, we we actually met when we were on a. Uh, we both worked with our, our marketing departments at our respective schools and we met filming uh, a commercial out in LA and we got to know each other pretty well that week and became good friends. And he said to me, he said, man, you know, we're all moving to New York when we graduate and you seem like the kind of guy that should like come out there with us. In fact, like we're all kind of film, you know, like actor types, writers, producers. And he's like, but we don't, none of us know anything about business. We, we're we going to start a production company and you should come be our business guy and it's kind of like, you know, you're like 18 years old and you're like, yeah, 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 that, that sounds great, man. Let me know when you, you know, your thing turns into the next Warner Brothers and call me up and I'd be happy to come be your CEO, right? Total pipe dream. I'm like, yeah, whatever. But these guys actually moved to New York and they said, they said like, hey, come out and visit. And and my buddy Matthew just kept like pestering me with like text messages and stuff being like, come, come visit us in New York. And one weekend I caught a whim and did. And I really had no interest in moving to New York, but I thought it was pretty interesting what they were doing. And, you know, at the time, I was enjoying what I was doing in the corporate world, but I was living in kind of this big, comfortable place in the suburbs and working in this big, nice building in the suburbs. And I visited New York, and these guys are living in this, like, uh, it was literally like a crack building because they got duped on a sublet fraud and all this crazy stuff happened, but they were like there and they were like, we are going to make this movie because this story needs to be told. They're like, we don't care what it takes. We don't care that we're not building our resumes right now. We're here to make this movie. And I was just like, so astonished because again, I I, I grew up and came up through this school, uh, this business school that was very much like, here's exactly what you do. Here's all the boxes to check and then do this and then do that. And then you're going to get this job and blah, blah, blah. And, it just shocked me out of my context and out of my comfort that I was kind of getting um, you know, used to. And uh, I eventually did, uh, uh, I looked into some possibilities and I found an opportunity within my company to move out there. And uh, you know, a couple of years after being in New York and being around these people, doing the creative brunches on Sundays, I just was ready to leave. I was ready to leave the corporate thing. I knew that that was what I needed to do. And um, I finally got an opportunity. It was like a, there was a clear open door for me to leave. And that was right at the time when these guys were uh, fundraising for their film. They finally were making the leap and just saying, we're going to try to fundraise. And uh, if the if our fundraising fails, we're going to put this project to bed once and for all. But if our fundraising is successful, then we're going to make this film. And so that's when I had an opportunity to become an executive producer for them uh, on that film and actually kind of fulfill that dream that they, you know, sort of you know, for lack of a better term, prophetically said, you know, eight years earlier and saying like, hey, you should be our business guy. Uh, and so I joined him as a executive producer on the project as I was leaving this, uh, this corporate
0: role. I love that story, especially given the context for the first part of our conversation, because so much of what you attribute your own kind of growth and benefit from as a professional wouldn't have happened if you didn't take that leap. Like New York wouldn't have even happened. I mean, it could have happened another way, I suppose. But it it seems like that was pretty instrumental.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And, and that's not to say that those were easy choices and I just, you know, it, it sounds like, oh yeah. And then this opportunity happened right. and then, you know, whatever. Right. But literally I remember, I'll never forget this the night before. So I, I interviewed for this job. I didn't think that I got it. And I basically said, if I didn't get this job in New York, I'm staying here and I'm going to forget about New York and I'm going to focus on where I am. And I, uh, Friday came, Friday went, that's when I was supposed to get the call. They didn't call. I assume that meant I didn't get it. And then I started like saying, okay, I'm, I'm staying here. And Sunday afternoon of all times, I get a call and they offer me the job. I'm like, who offers you a job on this Sunday afternoon,
0: right? (laughs) That's great. So, so, uh, in more recent days, uh, you know, the super success story with little Tin Man distribution happened. People get it on iTunes. They have to go check it out. But then there's this whole other world that you're a part of, which is actually helping other people, you know, accelerate their, their nonprofits or their for-profit businesses through this thing called Praxis. Talk a little bit about what Praxis is and what your role is.
1: Well, you know, Praxis is a a venture group that is really, you know, kind of focused on high impact entrepreneurship. And um, that means that we work with nonprofits, businesses, and social enterprises, uh, basically people that are, are trying to create ventures that bring about good in the world in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, I was just really fortunate a number of years back, actually, when I was thinking about leaving the corporate thing and this, this film thing came along, that I actually met the guys that had founded Praxis. And, they were just incredible people and the kind of people that I said, man, if there was, th- there was an opportunity, I don't, I don't know that there will be cause I kind of want to go start my own thing. But if there's an opportunity to work with them, maybe, maybe I would. And uh, so I met them. I went on a journey for about six months for myself. That was when we did the film and I was working on some other things and, uh, and then there was an opportunity to join them. And um, after having more conversations and getting to know them, I, I decided to, to join up with them. It's just been a huge privilege to, work and and serve alongside the guys that founded Praxis, Dave Blanchard and Josh Kwan, and uh, as well as the other people that are a part of the the wonderful team that we have. And most importantly, the entrepreneurs that we get to serve there. It's just an incredible group of people.
0: So (laughs) why do you care about all these other people? Like (laughs) what is driving, like, it just seems like you want good for you and you want good for the planet everywhere you go. And it seems like that's having a ripple effect, whether it be the Sunday afternoon things, or whether it be praxis, th- th- something had to have happened in your past that kind of flicked a switch for you to be other focused. What would you attribute that to?
1: Well, you know, you know, Dane, I, I would say that I part of it is a is a, a spiritual and a faith component. Of you know, I, I grew up in a in a home. Uh, my parents went to church and just taught taught me certain values and lessons growing up. But that's not all that there is to it, in the sense that. It was something that I think I grew up with and I, um, you know, I believed in it, but it didn't become real to me until I went through something really hard in my life. Uh, one of the people that was a part of our inspiration brunches back in the day, uh, a really dear friend of mine, uh, his, his name was Sunday Ibak, and uh, just one of the people that just loved and served like nobody that I've ever seen, just poured himself out uh, for other people, just doing all the things in New York that other New Yorkers don't do. And my, and my friend Sunday passed away very suddenly. He had a massive brain aneurysm out of nowhere, and he passed away when he was 32 years old. He, he was healthy as can be, and um, it was a real shock to my life and, and my system, my belief system, my values. And I really had to wrestle with faith for the first time in my life and say, like, do I actually believe in this thing? And I went through a really hard, kind of dark season, to be honest, uh, and it was coming out of that season that I kind of got things put back in perspective for me. And it compelled me to actually go back out there and and you know for for lack of a better term uh, you know kind of get back in the game and just engage and try to do you know what, whatever I can with what I've got for however long that I'm here and that 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 sounds fairly cliche and and the problem I think was uh, that it was very cliche for me until I experienced like loss and uh, and watched a really great friend you know pass away and no longer be with us and and that is kind of compelled me and, and, uh, motivated a lot of us to just live and love differently. Um, so it's, it kind of hits at a pretty deep level, um, Mm. as a little bit of a nod to my friend and how well he loved and served other people. Mm.
0: You run another, or a board member, rather, a chairman of the board at 100 Cameras. Uh, It's a nonprofit that empowers marginalized children to be catalysts for change in their communities. Talk a little bit about that project.
1: No, well, well. F- first of all, it, the way that you said it, we, it sounds like we got to change the name, like Catalyst for Change. It was like a whole mouthful there. Like, <laughs> I was like, wait a second, what do
0: we actually? Well, do? okay. Well, um, you, well you, John, you know, you know, my background is a photographer. That's why I was so excited yeah. to talk about it. But it's because, and it is, it is kind of a, a tagline, or you know, but it's it's a nonprofit, and yeah. it ha- has to do with cameras, and it's empowering kids to make change happen. And how do you put all those pieces together?
1: Yeah well so you know Dane this is another one too that I I'd be remiss if um if I took too much credit for for the story at all but the the founding story is this our you know, a, a, a dear friend of ours uh, was going to work at an orphanage for a month uh, in the summertime. She was just going to go there and work, and she was a photographer, and she got all of her friends to donate uh, digital cameras, old cameras to her. She brought them there. She taught the kids how to how to take photos. It was as simple as that. And uh, the pictures that she came back with were totally incredible, incredible. And it actually recast the story of what was going on in the South Sudan. And we found how powerful it was to get the story from the lens of a child as opposed to the lens of an adult, right? Or somebody that came in with their own set of, um, you know, call it like in in Africa, for example, there's a lot of like Western guilt, right? Because we have our Western privilege and we go over there and experience poverty and brokenness. And we shoot, you know, frame the story in a, in a certain way in, in, our, in our photographs. And we found the kids to be, you know, just joyful in spite of their circumstances. And a simple thing is teaching them how to, how to take pictures and give them the tools to do it was like incredibly freeing and life-giving for them. So, you know, where we maybe thought that what we needed to do was bring them, you know, food or medicine or clothing or something like that, um, giving them this tool and empowering them like that was, it was incredible. And so when Susanna came back, we just said, we got to do something about this. Like, we need to do this in more communities. How do we do that? It was it was kind of like, a, you can't you can not not continue to tell this story and give more children the opportunity to do it. So that's basically what we do. We teach uh, children, and specifically, we look for marginalized children that wouldn't normally have these opportunities. Uh, children that perhaps need a reframing of their story have had hard things happen to them. And uh, we just share with them that that's not, it doesn't have to be your future as well. You can do it differently and you can actually be part of the change that happens in your community and doing something like learning photography, learning a real skill and creating a beautiful piece of art can actually help catalyze and bring about change both within you and how you see the world as well as, you know, from a resource perspective. So we started selling the photos and then the money would go back into the community and bring about you know change help help them bring more resources into the community and and that helps them also believe that real change can happen
0: given all the projects that you are carrying at any given moment i got to believe that you have some kind of daily method or set of rituals on how you navigate keeping your head straight and heart straight in the midst of uh, expectations of others and yourself do you have any any kind of daily practices that happen that are you're pretty religious about
1: yeah well <laughs> It, it's it's funny you say that. Um, I, I would say that it has traditionally probably looked like um, the opening scene in in uh, in the movie Twister, just basically a, a tornado and a whirlwind <laughs> of stuff and things. All of a sudden, you see like a cow flying. Like, oh yeah, that thing. We we need to do something about that. <laughs> I mean, it's just like a total deluge of things, but. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of started to become a, a better learner about this space and realized that I need systems and habits to manage the chaos. And uh, I, I won't always be able to get by, especially as I get older. Uh, I, I need to be able to sleep more, uh, <laughs> less uh, 3 a.m. nights. Um, yeah, I've I found some really great productivity tools. These are not my ideas. There, are, uh, A number of other people have written great resources on that. So, a simple daily habit of Number one, keeping my phone away from me at night. You know, when I shut the phone off, uh, it is away from me. And, you know, having a rule of not checking, you know, I shut off email notifications and basically all notifications. So I just don't get notifications on my phone. Kind of that first hour, at least of my day, there's like a don't check email rule. Um, I, I, I do try to, you know, get some form of exercise in at some point every day, whether that's right in the morning um, and just kind of some form of you know, reading, uh, you know, kind of uh, call it meditation, prayer, uh, whatever that is. I mean, it's just so crucial to start your day off that way. And then I think it's a rhythm thing as well. So I do not work on a hundred cameras every day of the week. Um, I certainly, when we were doing the film, I, you know, when we are in production, yeah, you kind of had to be there all the time, but, you know, since then it was sort of like, there was one day of the week or certain times that I'd say, I'm going to think about it during this time and it's going to be a block. So I can actually think and, you know, use creative capacity toward it, as opposed to kind of having like thinking about four different projects at once. I never get anywhere. And that's, that was kind of my old way, right. Of the the twister.
0: A couple of rapid fire questions. The most, sure. the most significant influence person wise, person and or book uh, this year.
1: Yeah, I would say the this year uh, I read a book called "The Obstacle Is the Way."
0: Oh yeah, Ryan Holiday. He's and, a guest on the show.
1: Yeah, yeah, really, really great book. Just the idea of framing a problem and looking at what you can do, and not not being so worried about why did this thing happen, but what do I do as a response to it? Um, just very, very helpful.
0: Yeah, and uh, all time,
1: all time. Well, I you know I, I'd be remiss if I didn't if I didn't say it's sounds like a cliche answer but my dad in terms of just his ability to teach me lessons not by sitting me down and teaching me lessons but by living them out Hmm. and just the way that he taught me the value of hard work uh how to how to value excellence and just kind of this um you know the idea of learning all the time as well as just kind of being deeply rooted in, in in a faith and something that's being a part of something that's much bigger than you and living life for something that's bigger than you.
0: And finally, uh, one piece of awesome you'd wish on the creative looking to make a difference with what they're making right now. One piece of awesome. What would you say to them?
1: Failure is easier to fix than regret. You gotta dive in and you gotta allow yourself to fail because if not, you're gonna hold a bunch of regrets in your life and you can't go back and and change regret, but you can you can change and you can adapt after you fail and learn.
0: This was episode 048 of Converge, the Business of Creativity Podcast. GoBeCollective.com is our new home for all things Converge. There you'll find past episodes as well as Go, the unconference for creatives looking to grow their business, Faster Mind Coaching, business coaching every entrepreneur can afford, and much, much more. Want to join the collective? Check out GoBeCollective.com. Music Today provided by TripleSkipMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at Acreative.co for her audio production. And special thanks to John for being with us. He's the guy on the stage if you go check out praxisacademy.org. Of course, you can find him everywhere else, too. Check out the show notes. In the meantime, if you have not shared an episode of Converge with a friend, would you consider it? Think of one person right now who you think would benefit from my conversations with Seth Godin, Chris Gillibo, and Hanley, Ryan Holiday, and many, many others. And invite them to join in. You caring enough to do that sort of thing is a nod to us that we're doing something right. And, like leaving those reviews on iTunes, we see you, thank you, it's a really big deal. So again, thanks. That's it for now, I'm Dan Sanders, I cannot wait until next time.